Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I am Colin, your main host. Uh, we're back a little bit after a small hiatus. It's been a crazy world, as it has been for the past several months. But we're back, and uh, what this week... What could have possibly I... happened, Colin, that would ever... <laughs> make things crazy i mean there wasn't like a thing where i went somewhere put something in a in a i pressed a button told people what i wanted no hot there wasn't no candy this year either people's houses I so know, i don't know right? i don't know what I mean, ever could have happened i don't know about you but i absolutely abigail and i just bought a ton of candy and just ate it ourselves <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I might, I may or may not have also done that, and there may or may not also be a very large stash of candy in my house somewhere. <laughs> uh, but with my so- like running and trying to lose weight, I, I've I've also been very judicious, so I hid it for myself too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So literally, you come to my house, it's almost like it will be a treasure hunt because if you find it, it's yours probably. <laughs> uh so guys i am joined of course this week by susan hi susan <laughs> hi all right so guys this week uh we are officially continuing our legend of Korra discussion and guys i could not be more excited because we are finally at last diving into legend of Korra season two episode seven beginnings part one Ah. So, um, this episode and the one that follows, uh, we're going to be breaking this up into multiple parts, just kind of giving you guys that fair warning ahead of time. Um, so this may be part one of part one, maybe who knows, we're going to, we're going to kind of just record, we're going to see where things lie and take it from there. But, um, guys, we are going to be diving into beginnings part one this week. And these two episodes are so influential they changed the game they expanded on the mythos of the avatar world um introduced uh and answered so many questions um and really just expanded everything uh that we know about the avatar in a profound way so we're going to be kind of examining these two episodes through a couple different lenses Obviously, we're going to kind of be recapping, going through, breaking down uh, kind of the the story beat by beat, but we're also going to be looking at just kind of where this changes things, how it changes, where it lies in the midst of this second season of Korra. Um, We're going to look at what we really like. And also critique some. Uh, We've also got uh, some folks in our Discord who also chimed in uh, with some incredible feedback. Uh, We did a little call to action to see if folks wanted to chime in with some of their thoughts about the the episodes. And uh, we've got some really fun uh, insights to share from them as well. We're going to be sharing that towards the end of today's episode. Um, but uh, we're very excited about that. And in the meantime, we can plug that. You want to join us in the conversation? We have a Discord channel. You can find it in our show notes. Uh, it is the Avatar Portal Disc- uh, Discord. So it is a 
eh, kind of a little homage to our old school forum, uh, the Avatar Portal. Um, but basically, we have all kinds of channels discussing everything from all the different seasons of Legend of Korra and Avatar The Last Airbender, as well as the uh, Rise of Kyoshi and Shadow of Kyoshi novels. Avatar Media, sharing memes, TikToks, YouTube theory videos, other podcasts, all kinds of stuff. Because honestly, we just love Avatar content and we want to just spread it and talk about it and share it. Uh, so join our community. We'd love to have you be a part of it. So without any further ado, let's get into this. <clears throat> first things first, before we even kind of dive into the beat by beat of this episode... I want to just kind of get the pulse from you, Susan, of when you initially saw this episode, where were you at in terms of just like your response and how how did you kind of take this episode when it first aired? Oh, when it first aired, do you remember we were sitting there and we were theorizing what happened to Korra? She had just gotten into a tussle with this dark spirit you know the the twins basically were like she's dead and all the other stuff that happened in the previous episodes with mako and asami and we're like and then we get this part at the end and we're like and she wakes up on the beach and you gotta remember that we were all like hanging on for like i think it was a two week if i remember two week hiatus before this episode aired Mm -hmm. and i just remember sitting around going what happened (laughs) and then you get to the part where you know okay this, the sages they've got her and you're like what are they gonna do and then i remember the art style was what grabbed me the most about this episode the flip mm. in the art style to kind of give that homage back to the um almost woodblock paintings if you will of of that time mm. of like a uh, older of an older kind of like Asian influence of those woodblock. I don't know if you've ever seen the woodblock paintings oh, with yeah. carvings. Mm-hmm. And they would basically woodblock print and then they would take it and like press it on a paper. Mm-hmm. And like that's kind of what always got to me in this episode is that it just, it's the amazingness of which the art style, and you know the art style wasn't done that way. You know it was like computer drawn, but it's just, it's incredible to think that. Mm, and absolutely. I think the other big part of this is just how we we gravitate to the idea that this the avatar is supposed to be this um, bridge between the spirit world and everything. And when we meet the person we're about to talk about, um, it's kind of like we're like, wow, really that guy? But almost <laughs> almost an Aladdin type feel to him in a little bit. Mm. So we'll get into it though. Yes, big Aladdin energy. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm right, right there with you. I remember just feeling that from the minute this episode started off, that we were going to be seeing something incredibly important. Um, again, I'm right there with you with the art style. It just immediately jumps out at you. The music as well. I'm going to kind of dive into some of that. Um, there, there's just a lot uh, from an artistic standpoint that these two episodes uh, particularly just completely knock it out of the park. So a uh, big thing to note is that throughout uh, book two, um, they actually switched over 
animation studios. So through all of book one, uh, they were using Studio Mer. Um, and then for the beginnings of book two, they were using uh, uh, Period. I don't know. It's spelled P-I-E-R-R-O-T. That was a change for them. I, I don't think they ever really, besides one other episode this season, they never really returned to them. Um, so they specifically went to the studio that they have been kind of utilizing throughout all of book one of Korra to come back to this one. Um, this uh, episode was uh, directed by Colin Heck, and it was specifically written by Michael Dante DiMartino. Uh, so again, as we've kind of noticed previously in this podcast, whenever there is a really intensive lore heavy episode, it's usually written by either Mike or Brian, Mike and Brian uh, together, or just they're usually the ones that kind of come in and specifically will write the episode. Cause obviously they're always kind of the showrunners. They're always kind of like overviewing the story. They're kind of making notes and everything. But when it comes down to individual episodes, it's written by different folks, whether that's Tim Hedrick, uh, Joshua Hamilton. Those are some of the other writers from this season. Um, so you have those folks, but specifically Mike is the one to write this episode. Um, he really kind of sets it up and is really setting the tone for this right away. So we open to Korra being carried on a stretcher to some mysterious ruins and a fire sage determines that a dark spirit has plagued her spirit and threatening the avatar spirit. They lower her on this pulley system down into these waters and even before that, I want to kind of take a note. We've always seen like waterbenders be kind of these spiritual, like kind of always kind of having, because they're this always in tune with the was spirits. the coolest thing, Colin. Mm -hmm. Like I'm glad you brought this up because the idea is that, you know, fire sages, we really don't ever get that in the first, in the first iteration with Aang is that they understand the healing properties of water or you know special like spiritual connection to water and that it has that ability but in in this one you know he purposely says let the let the spiritual waters heal you kind of I think is what the quote was and mm -hmm. it's I'll have to look it up but I mean like that is a huge pivot from where we were previously where it was you know you know your element and that's really it like this is more white lotus like the elements are in balance iro stuff like every mm. every element has a balance to it kind of thing and that is pretty amazing so yeah and just the way that she does the fire bending over cora as she's kind of like making this like diagnosis it was such a beautiful use of fire bending in a way that again i think just goes to show the impact of the way that fire bending has changed I think all across. And, and again, we don't get much of the Fire Nation in Legend of Korra because I think that Mike and Brian realized that, look, like the Fire Nation was the main focus of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. And, you know, whether it was not only just in season three, but they're the antagonists, there's, they're always kind of there and a huge part of like all of the episodes. So they kind of went away from them. But I think we have to realize and understand is that 
when Zuko went to the Firebending Masters, he rediscovered this new way of firebending. He is the type of person who clearly is going to share that with the world. We already saw in the difference that we in book one of Korra, all of these people who are lightning bending. And we learn that lightning bending was originally only reserved for like the most elite families of the Fire Nation as a way to kind of hold this power that all of the other firebenders could not do. And I mean, I wanted to bring that up because boy, oh boy, are we going to see that that has deep, deep roots in the history of bending. Um, But it's just, it's so fascinating because I think like this firebending that she does, it is so much more reminiscent of the firebending that we see in the firebending masters. It is this sense that fire is life and it has a way of being able to understand the chi and the energy of the body and the spiritual energy of the body. It's... It's just such a short moment, but I love it. So they lower her down to these kind of spiritual waters. And we get this moment where Korra has a uh, very similar moment to Aang from the Guru in book two of The Last Airbender. When he kind of has this kind of spiritual out-of-body experience, he has like this cosmic experience where he goes up on this like little spiritual cosmic highway and he sees this like larger version of himself. And it's like this like purple stylized version. And this time it's Korra seeing her own reflection uh, in a similar type of fashion. And this time we see that, again, her memory has been lost. We found that out at the end of the last episode that she, she has no idea who she is. And this is all of her past lives trying to help her understand who she is again. We see it cycle through Aang to Roku to Kyoshi and then landing on Kurok who tells her that she needs to find Rava. The light flashes and as it kind of swirls around, we see this bright circle and then a figure standing in the midst of it. And Kor asks, are you Rava? And he says, I can help you find her. And introduces himself as Juan, the first avatar. Ah. Uh. <laughs> it's goosebumps every time like you, you think about it again. Like it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. You like, <laughs> but it, and like I it's just it's it's amazing. And then like, it's crazy because too, when you're watching it, right. When you watch it flip through back to that art style thing we talked about earlier is as soon as it gets to Juan, you can see the art style sort of change. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is like really just impressive. Hmm. It's and... a great way to showcase like the difference of an era between yes, where exactly Cora is it. at and where he's at. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's like, I feel like it was a deliberate choice to do it that way. Like when it was showing each avatar, you kind of got a little bit different art style a little bit in the drawing of the avatars. And I sort of felt like it was a bit of a choice on the artist's point is that, or the writer's point is that you want them to look different because you want to illustrate that there's a legacy here and that it has been going for generations and if it all looked the same, you wouldn't get that same effect right away. Yeah. 
it, and we get this sense too. Every single time that we saw in the Last Airbender, the idea of like the legacy of the avatars, like think about in the Southern Air Temple, the countless statues that were all lined up, the just long line of avatars when Aang is looking down the line during those moments where Roku is telling him about the avatar spirit. It is nearly unending. All of these different figures, even when we see Korra at the end of book one, she sees all of the past lives kind of echoing off into the distance. It, this has been going on for uh, an, an incalculable amount of time. Mm. And now we're kind of getting to look at the beginning. So we cut to a new world and we see Juan running from three brothers holding spears. Uh, he crosses rooftops in a very stylized arts, uh, art style, as we were saying earlier, very reminiscent of many traditional uh, Chinese illustrations, Japanese block paintings, a lot of uh, this East Asian influence of uh, the types of murals um, in just all different types. Uh, I, I wish I was more uh, versed in art history that I could use kind of the proper terminology for it. But it, it it's so much is when you think of a lot of the traditional styles of East Asian art you just get that sense immediately from this in the way that the line work with the colors, uh, the flourishes of the backdrops with like, especially clouds, like being, it, it, it's much more uh, distinct layers instead of it kind of all blending together. You can kind of see that there are very distinct uh, layers between like the foreground of the buildings, the background of the air itself. Um, there's just so much that they're working with here. And as Juan is kind of running from them, we get just this beautiful example. And then it's accompanied by this music. Again, it's kind of got almost this like kabuki flair to it. Um, for any uh, folks who have ever had the chance to like uh, watch YouTube videos or films with like kabuki plays, it is always this like, uh, it's very kinetic music with lots of uh, symbols, horns, and lots of just spaces in between, uh, kind of echoing silence, followed by explosions of this like very powerful uh, just kind of music that just comes out of nowhere. And it's this energy immediately that they bring to it. Uh, and again, we kind of talked about before, that initial reaction, that's what really reaches out at you. So immediately they're setting the stage. And then we get to see where Juan lives. Uh, we see that he lives on the outskirts of a walled off city with two other people and frankly, a shack. Uh, Juan splits the little food he recovered with them uh, and with forest animals that stop by. Uh, and then we get a sense of who he is as a person very quickly. He talks of plans to get into the food stores of the Chews, which we realize were kind of these three brothers and are assuming the ruling class of this city. Um, and he, it, it, the one line in particular that always really stands out to me, and I think it shows, it's very much uh, foreshadowing to this society. He says, 
He goes, if we could just get that food, we'd be eating like, well, like chews. And it's something that we recognize is that the phrase would be like, you could be eating like kings. But that term, any kind of an emperor, chieftain, it is not there. All we know is that the choose equals power in this instance. And this gets to the Aladdin big energy here. <laughs> it really is. He's like... <laughs> When we first meet Aladdin, like, the whole reason... And it's exactly when we first meet Juan, he's stealing food. That's what mm-hmm. Aladdin's doing, he's stealing food. <laughs> and then he feeds everybody but himself because he feels like others need it more than him. Mm-hmm. Which is what Juan does. So you're like, oh, okay, this, this is kind of like the lovable rogue we're supposed to like. And then, like, what he does next basically makes you go, that's not very Avatar-like. <laughs> But like, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty humorous and to an extent. I guess there's always some character where it's like you have to, and I get this to the next point. I guess is that it's really showcasing the dynamics between the light side and the dark side, and that there is going to always be that push and pull, and we see that as it goes forward. Um, through the Avatar being chosen, because the Avatar is always supposed to make the right decisions and be good, and that's what Korra's been struggling with all season so far, is just, how do I know I'm making the right decisions? I want to do stuff for me. Like, you know, it's been that continual war inside herself between your own selfish desire and being the Avatar, and we first meet this character, they too have this issue, and they become the first Avatar, so it's the dynamic is very interesting, and as we go forward in the story with Juan, um, it, it comes to fruition more forwardly, but it's it's a very interesting thing about balance. Always in balance. Mm, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But we can live like choose. Yeah. He's <laughs> not <Exact> choose! <laughs> so it's interesting because the two people that he is living with, one of them is like this younger uh, guy who... You know, again, just very kind of like he's just wearing these dirty robes. They're clearly living in squalor. And the other man is this strange man with bark covering parts of his body. And he has tree-like appendages. Um, The one friend warns, like, look, if you steal from the Chews, it means you could end up dead or worse banished to the spirit wilds the man with the bark on his skin echoes this warning saying how the spirits will get inside you and scramble up your mind and the last thing that his friend says is one you need to accept that some people in the world have power and some don't and you don't and we immediately see that Juan refuses to accept this. So, a few points to touch on as we kind of get this beginning here. First and foremost is, again, setting the scene and establishing this world and its power dynamics. Um, again, we get the sense that Juan living with these people on the outskirts of the city, they're the have-nots versus the haves with the choose. Um, immediately setting that tone. 
we're seeing that Juan is defined as a character. We get a sense of him having kind of this like Aladdin energy to him, always kind of like wanting to put the needs of others before himself. And then we also get the threat of the unknown with the spirit wilds. This idea that something is worse than death. And I want to kind of just uh, reflect on those points before we kind of go uh, a little bit more f- uh, any farther and what some of your thoughts were on them. I mean, it also sets it up that we're in a world no longer understood by us because mm. as we've been in this world, it's been predominantly dominated by humans mm. and interactions with the spirits are few and far between and rare with the exception of the avatar who is the bridge between the worlds um and in this world ross introduced the idea that people don't have bending or at least we believe that in the beginning um and that was something we were not a privy to before that people just didn't have that but lastly we're also now realizing that we're in a world that is dominated by spirits. Spirits literally run free in this world. And mm. if anything, the humans are now confined to small central areas. And that is a huge takeaway because it's completely different from what is currently, with the exception of rogue spirits now plaguing places, which that's a whole other storyline back to the original main point storyline. Um, I mean, this is this is. Uh, flipping up the narrative like you you had a narrative one way and now you know and i think this is where the amnesia storyline is like kind of irritating because if you're trying to help her get her memory back this is not gonna (laughs) yes (laughs) she's not gonna she's not gonna come out of this and be like oh yeah that's right i uh i uh the spirits don't work live here anymore like i feel like she'd be panicking she'd be like oh my gosh is this what's going on outside right now Mm -hmm. i don't know so yeah, like, I I think this really does change around the way we are staged to view the world, not as it is, but as it was. So. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think I'm glad that you kind of brought up that point, too. With the amnesia, again, it it is this sense that it's exciting that we're seeing this. But again, it is... It feels like it's a roundabout way to get to where Cora needs to get to understand. And the thing is, is that it, it is an interesting uh, just like approach to kind of go and dive into this story. But I think where some of the critiques that we're going to really kind of see is not in the st- not as much. I feel like in the story itself, sometimes it could be. And there's some points that we can bring up, but more in the way that it rests in the middle of this season. And I think it is why people have always had such mixed feelings about book two is because we are on this trajectory with the civil wars, the spirits in disarray were kind of uh, like building all this momentum. And then suddenly, holy crap, we're in the middle of like the beginning times. And it goes all the way back here and it's beautiful and it's amazing, but it is such a whiplash when you consider where we just were in the world of Korra. And that I think is just like, they do such a great job of establishing what is happening, but it is like a total 180 uh, with where we just were. 
I think I've just stated on this a little bit, the whole amnesia storyline, as much as I dislike the amnesia storyline as well, mm-hmm. to an extent, I feel that, and sometimes I tell, like, I tell like it is, like, the writers did this literally as a trope, or da 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 In this case, I feel that they did do justice to Cora's character in giving the amnesia storyline to introduce this. And here's my take on why. Cora is very strong-willed. She has a penchant for not listening to mm-hmm. things. And she also has an issue with, you know, getting to her spiritual side. She's had trouble. That's the whole reason we start the season is that she's with Tenzin and she doesn't feel like he can be a good spiritual teacher to her. So she goes to her uncle because she's trying to contact and get in touch with her spiritual side as the avatar and still having in terrible trouble with it. I think there was no effective way for Cora to do this on her own. This is mm. something where in some respect she had to almost be dragged kicking and screaming to be able to figure this out. So as much as I hate the amnesia storyline, I think it does fit well with Cora's characters that it's almost like she has to get whacked in the face with the truth before she can just realize <laughs> what's going on. And it's not, it's not anything bad to Cora because I do like Cora as the avatar. I think, you know, we have those periods in our lives where we're very strong willed and foolhardy and we're very adamant that what we're doing is the correct thing. And nobody else can tell us differently because we are who we are. But I also think that it, it pivots away from Aang who was more, as a younger mindset, he was very apt to wanting to know what the world was around him. He wanted to learn from the world around him. He was very eager to do that. He was eager to learn from everybody else. Whereas when we reached, and I don't know how many of our listeners or remember their teens or if they are teens. Um, if you're a teen, you're not going to believe this. But if you remember your teens, you probably will. <laughs> we are the most that's like the most stubborn age group between your teenagers and your 20s i swear it's it's like you're just you you think you know everything and it's almost like it takes a lot before you wake up and realize man i really didn't know all i thought i knew (laughs) um so i think it's just it's you know as much as we all we all kind of go oh the trope to get there but it really fell in line really well with Cora's character because it's almost as if she had to be whacked on the head with it. And that's literally kind of what happened. (laughs) (laughs) She really doesn't get whacked on the head kind of, and then, you know, has to think about it. But yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason she's out here. She started off being angry and upset that Mako and everything went on with him and he wouldn't help her. And she goes off on her own, and this is what kind of leads her out this way. And, you know, because she's, she's strong-willed stubborn at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is one thing that I really like about this whole set of setup with Korra is that you see her mature into the avatar you want her to be. Mm. Which is why I love because we don't get to see that sort of we see a little bit of thing but we have like a goal and a destination here we get to watch the evolution of an avatar and that's what's really cool about this whole entire series honestly mm-hmm. so yeah all right back to what our thing is though where are we at we're at uh Juan. <laughs> something here happening we, we, yeah we got off we got off we got off topic a little 
well, you know, I the thing is, is that I knew we would because I this uh, these episodes bring up so many questions. They have so much room for discussion. And the the last thing before we continue, I do kind of want to respond to uh, you know what you said is that I, I think that you raise a really valid point that because of Cora's stubbornness, that it would have been very difficult for her to. Uh, find that transition uh, and find a lesson there without it kind of being really just head over head like a blunt object, <laughs> like for lack of a better term. I mean, she is, it, when you refuse to address that, and I think that as we continue on through the season, we understand the stakes of the world as a whole. You think about like the powers that be and the spirits and the energy in the world, they're going to do anything that they can to be able to <laughs> like convey to her like, okay, girl, look, things are really bad. We need to convey this. We need you to understand this. You need to be in tune with your spiritual side. And again, is there a reason why they couldn't have done that with Aang to maybe prepare him? Who knows? <laughs> But that is where we find ourselves here in Korra. It's almost the theme of the season, though. It's like everybody needs to be hit over the head with a blunt object before they realize what they're doing is not the right way to go about it. Mako, Asami, Bolton, Korra. <laughs> even Tenzin. <laughs> even Tenzin. Mm-hmm. Even Tenzin. And Boomy. But Boomy just falls down a bunch of rocks. So. <laughs> By the way, with a short digression on that, there was a wonderful TikTok that uh, was just showcasing the reaction speed of Kaya and Tenzin in their bending in different parts of the series. They're like, look how fast Kaya brings this water around her. Look how fast Tenzin like reacts with air around him in this moment. They're like, you can't tell me that when Boomy fell down the rocks into the waterfall <laughs> that they couldn't have done anything because they are master benders and absolutely could have stopped him from falling. They just wanted to see him eat shit. <laughs> okay. It's it's not that they couldn't have done anything. It's called sibling rivalry, and you let your siblings fall down on their face, and you laugh at it and have a good hearty joke about it because basically you just watch your watch your sibling eat grass. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Ah, all right. So I'm sure it led to great great dinner table conversation. Hey, remember that time Booby fell down the rocks and into the waterfall? <laughs> That was great, wasn't it, Kaya? Kaya? Oh, yes, it was fantastic. So wonderful. Hey, Booby, remember when you... I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> you just, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, as we kind of go back to beginnings here, one decides, after being told that some people in the world have power and some don't, he kind of was just like, all right, we'll see about that. We see that Juan decides to find some power himself and join the hunt uh, to roust out spirits and recover food uh, for the city. Uh, A man in armor kind of talks about uh, calling out in the town square, who will join us to be able to uh, try and find food and, you know, venture into the spirit wilds. And Juan volunteers. And... The guy kind of eyes one and is just like, really, dude, you're kind of like a string bean. I, I don't see this happening. 
But one of the other people who has already volunteered is like, hey, look, we're not getting a lot of people. Like, let's just let them, like, join us. Come on. And so they venture out to a cliff outside of the city. And this leader blows a horn. And suddenly we see the city move. A lion turtle rises. And it is the one that is holding the city on its back. And we see a Grant's wand, the power of fire. Using its claws in an identical way that the one that Aang met in the finale of the original series did when he gifted him the knowledge of spirit bending. Gives Juan the power of firebending. So Juan then follows the team out into the wilds, but then he pretends that he is too scared to go on. Uh, the leader tells him to just run back to, to the city and give your give your power back to the, the lion turtle. And so Juan decides to do the opposite of that. He goes back to his home and he shows that he has the power of fire still in his hands. And his friend at first is just like, you're supposed to give that back to the lion turtle. And, you know, it, it's again, Juan is like, look, dude, we have power in our hands now. We're going to use it. And he decides to lead a small revolution, in a sense, to uh, gather others to break into the Chu's palace and take as much food as they can. We see the sequence of them breaking in at night. They all don these masks. Uh, the Chu's, uh, the brothers kind of show up when uh, Juan and the others are demanding that they let them in and share their food. And we get this line from the Chu's that say, you're not getting past us. We have the weapons. You are powerless. But Juan shows that he does have power. Fire bends at them and suddenly they bust through the doors, break into the palace, break into the food stores, and everyone begins to gather as much as they can. Suddenly the Chu brothers return with a regiment behind them and Juan covers for them. He tells the rest to get away as he holds them off with his firebending. And as one of the smaller Chu brothers jumps onto Juan, rips off his mask, Juan swirls this fire around him, and we see a haunting scene that is reminiscent of one we know all too well. The Chu brother lies on the ground, Juan standing with his hand raised, fire glowing above it, fire swirling around him. He sees the fear as the Chu brother pleads for his life. And then Juan lowers his hand, dissipates the fire, gets tackled. And then the Chu brother stands over him and says, even when you have the power, you're afraid to use it. Juan is then caught and subsequently banished to the spirit wilds. He doesn't sell out his comrades, though, and he accepts his punishment. But before he leaves, he pleads his case to the lion turtle to keep his firebending to be able to defend himself. And the lion turtle allows it. And Juan is left to roam the spirit wilds alone. 
his friends watching from afar, saying that he probably won't last the night. So there's a lot to unpackage in this whole sequence. You didn't even decide to slow down there, did you? You're like, let's get everything out now. (laughs) Because I've been trying to break up these, uh, the parts of this episode into blocks, and I feel like this one felt like there's a lot that happens, but I think it is a... And it all kind of falls within a singular block. So again, we see one, uh, we discover uh, one and the others are getting the power firebending from the lion turtle, where this city apparently is on top of. Uh, we see that one uses it as a revolution to be able to gather food. We learn that the Chews are the only ones with weapons in the town. And... Uh, like one faced with the power to be able to do something shows restraint and shows selflessness and shows humility as he is forced out. So first and foremost, I want to touch on this thought of the themes of revolution and challenging those who hold and hoard power. Do we want to talk about this right now? (laughs) I mean, just given her... Never mind. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Let's do this. Yes. Topics we should probably consider avoiding ever on a historical date for a thousand. <laughs> Man, that whiplash, though. Because you go from like, oh, Juan's kind of a bad guy. Oh, Juan's kind of a good guy. Juan's kind of a bad guy. Like, how am I supposed to feel about this man? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he I think- just... So it is crazy the way that he kind of approaches all of this. It's not Avatar-like really at all from what we typically see. But (laughs) it sort of is though, right? Mm, Because mm -hmm. the person with all the power um, oppressing others and not, you know, giving everyone a fair chance seems very reminiscent of what was going on previously in the last series. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with, yeah, it does sound like a little (laughs) Avatar-ish. And the restraint, definitely, totally, totally restraint being there. But, um, and gathering a revolution. Yeah, no, no, it's all still sounding very (laughs) Avatar-ish. Get a bunch of friends, go on a revolution, don't spell them out. Still Mm -hmm. sounds very Avatar-ish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Selfless act, benefiting those all involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if taking power from a lion turtle was really involved, but sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but the, to be fair though, Ang Ang also has some very uh, like kind of uh, trickster energy about him too. That he definitely let's uh, uh, well, I guess it's more of like I'm thinking more of like Katara with the water bending scroll. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> But Aang was very quick to condemn that. <laughs> so I, I guess let's let's unpack the fact that we like how much in this short amount of time suddenly expands what we know about like the Avatar world. That clearly this is the beginning times. The spirit wild spirits are basically kind of more or less ruling more of the earth itself. And humans are living on lion turtles. Okay, let's go back to the idea that essentially in this in this world, in the beginning, spirits own the world. Humans were just animals or okay, creatures that were permitted to live within their world on the backs of lion turtles. Essentially, 
humans were no better than a, a symbiotic parasite on a lion turtle's back. Mm-hmm. Man, where's Kristen when I need her here for this one? I know, right? <laughs> she could give you a whole entire speech on this stuff. We need her. Where is she? Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it it totally changes everything you ever thought. Like, they're living on the back. I guess this kind of gets to the idea that the whole planet in Avatar could be on the back of a lion turtle. <laughs> well, it's it's very <laughs> much. Like, do you remember it, those images that would come out like that? And I was just like, wow. Okay. I I mean, the thing is, is that it is very much a. Uh, it's influenced by. Uh, our own kind of myths and traditions as well. There is the idea of the uh, the myth of the world turtle. Uh, turtle. God, I've been playing too much D and D. The world turtle, um, also referred to as the cosmic turtle or the world bearing turtle. Um, it is basically this uh, myth of a giant turtle or tortoise. Uh, supporting or containing the world. So we saw this, and there's like a couple different um, uh, cultures that have this. Um, there is a world turtle in Hindu mythology uh, known as uh, Akupara. Um, and it's this idea that, uh, it, again, I'm trying to, let's see here. I was about to say, I bet you're looking this up. There is no way that you knew that word and that it was part of Hindu culture just off the top of your head. <laughs> yes. Um, so again, that that was part. That was one part of it. China also has in uh, Chinese mythology, uh, the creator goddess Nuwa um, cut the legs off a giant sea I remember turtle, that Ayo, one. Uh, and used them to prop up the sky after uh, Gong Gong damaged Mount uh, Bujo, which it's previously supported the heavens. But Mike and Brian have specifically noted that one of their biggest influences was, in fact, uh, from uh, indigenous uh, um, na- uh, Native Americans, um, the Lenape myth of the great turtle. Um, so this is a myth that is shared by uh, a lot of different other uh, indigenous peoples of the northeastern woodlands, uh, notably the Iroquois. Um, and the idea is is that, uh, well, let me see here. So this is the idea that, um, it, again, that the idea that the world is being carried, carried on the back of a turtle and that it is this idea that like it is always supported on the back of there. So there, there's like, there is a lot that... Uh, it's very much steeped in a lot of different mythologies. And I love that they decided to kind of go with this idea that civil human civilization began and was really being established on the backs of the lion turtles. And you think about it, it is, they are these kind of like, they are these safe havens for humanity to be able to flourish because you know that the spirits aren't going to mess with the lion turtles because the lion turtles are clearly like, uh, top dog <laughs> in the spirit world uh, or, you know, with the spirits, there's definitely kind of like a reverence for them there. But it's the idea that the, the lion turtle is the one that gave the power of firebending because what we had always kind of thought was that they like humans learned bending from the original benders, AKA the dragons, the sky bison, Tween law, um, and uh, the badger moles. We kind of see that that's still the case, but in a different sense, a little bit later in this episode. 
But again, it is just such a huge drop of information in changing the game in such a short amount of time. It's wild. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And I don't I don't know. I mean and you're right, you're right. Like you know the spirits are not gonna mess with the lion turtle. So mm-hmm. it's almost like it's very safe for them to be a part of the Lion Trolls ecosystem, if you will. But it also, you're right, it, it kind of redevelops the mythos where we're like, oh, they learned firebending from like the original masters or they learned earthbending. From the... It's like somebody had to give it to them first. And then the mm. styles might have been learned from those entities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's this idea that they are given the power temporarily. Uh, yes. that once they are given the power they have to return it and it is this idea that like you can't just like hold on to this power and keep it with you there's a sense that the lion turtles understand that it is also volatile and if you just leave people with this power something bad could happen we'll kind of see how that goes <laughs> um but as we see one alone in the spirit wilds He, frankly, is making his way through a hellscape of stress and terror as everything around him is trying to kill him. Um, It kind of echoes a little bit of uh, there's a great moment in the Dark Crystal uh, series that uh, Netflix developed um, that kind of is like the origin story that as one of the Gelfling makes their way into like the above world for the first time there's just like all this stuff that is just trying to kill them <laughs> like everything all of the different plants they realize that like the ground them itself can swallow them up it's this idea that like this is a wild world and it has not at all been tamed and it is not friendly to humans there's a reason why humans are living on the backs of lion turtles and it is right here we see him try to eat fruit that turns out to be a bunch of bugs uh he almost gets uh trapped into a uh like a vine equivalent of quicksand um he hears these screeches and terrors comes across a, a toad spirit that he thought he almost stepped on then transforms into this massive toad <laughs> and all of this stress mounts and then he finally gets a moment of reprieve as he stumbles down and stumbles upon an oasis in the distance. He tries to enter, but then a spirit uh, stops him from passing. Uh, It is a very sassy spirit who I love very much. Um, (laughs) And it's this is like my this... favorite spirit, by the way, in this whole thing. Like, <laughs> I heart this spirit so hard. So, uh, it, it, this whole thing really is such a beautiful nod to uh, Spirited Away. Because a bridge leading over to this oasis, and suddenly as Juan is refused entry, he watches as dozens of spirits cross the bridge to go to the oasis to relax. It is exactly the scene from Spirited Away where all the spirits are going into the bathhouse. And uh, as um, Chihiro is trying to make her way to the bathhouse i haku tells her like look you have to hold your breath 
or else they're going to know that you are here. They're going to smell you out and they do not let humans go in here. And (laughs) instead of holding his breath to remain invisible, instead, and I will argue in true Avatar fashion, decides to cloak himself in leaves from a bush and tries to pass himself off as Bushy, the great bush spirit. Bushy! Bushy! And the spirit buys it for a moment. Like, he's just like, okay, come on in. Hey, you know what it was reminiscent of, though? was the Swamp Benders. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Hey, Bushy has mythos now. (laughs) <laughs> Just so <laughs> he is quickly rooted out as the spirit smells him um and as he is like kicked off of the bridge he appeals to the spirits um but you know he's just like please i like i'm just i'm trying to like i'm trying to find a way to live and they say well why don't you just go to one of your other uh like this is the know, greatest part colonies. yeah and he's, and mm-hmm. he's like he's like go find other lion turtles or and the, he's like there are other lion turtles and they're like yeah <laughs> yep and we find out that in fact that's where many bastions of human civilization are starting to form so things to unpackage just in this section alone again a point to Mike and Brian's inspiration from Miyazaki. They have count on countless examples shown how big of an influence how Miyazaki has been on their work, ranging from everything from Spirited Away to Princess Mononoke, Kiki's Delivery Service, all of these different films, not only in artistic style, but also the themes of spirits and humans and the relationship between civilization and nature. And Again, it's this tension, uh, this separation. We have humans living on the lion turtles, spirits living here in peace and in the wilds. And the idea that humans are dangerous and that they are a nuisance to the spirits. Um, It's it's interesting to see them. uh, And I love that they really, as they're kind of, diving into the origin story of their world they're tapping into one of their biggest influences to really showcase that and i i think it's it's so beautiful for them to acknowledge that and really lean into it as well so in this in this area um i you know what's great about this is it really gives a delineation between spirits and how spirits view humans and how humans just didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like they knew nothing. Yeah. Literally nothing. Mm. They were like little babies in the world comparatively. Yeah. You know, minus the whole peeing and pooping on themselves. They were they were essentially babies. It's amazing because you've got oh, I love I love the spirit that's the gatekeeper. He's just so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's this idea that like it is the sheer isolation of the of these different colonies of humans that one is absolutely floored that there are other like cities and that there are other lion turtles. Mm-hmm. 
which again, we, we got this nod earlier when he was just like, you know, if we could eat, if we could get this food, we'd be eating, well, like chews. That is his entire world. That is all that they know is this idea of like this power structure, this civilization, this city, that is their entire life. It is all contained within this single city. The people who don't have the leadership of the choose that it's, it. that's all it is. Yep. And we really see that hit home with Juan in this moment. Um, it, and the other point I want to touch on too, is that again, visually immediately we see the similarity between this oasis and the spirit oasis in the North pole. Yes. Like it's, it's exactly, it's just almost identical with the way that it's laid out and the significance of it as well, which again, it's just, it's such a beautiful nod to uh, like the significance of a place like that and how that tradition has maintained for so long. Indeed. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a that's a great point. Is that it's just there are elements in the world that as they stand today that are almost untouched mm. from the world as it was, and I think that's kind of the key here is finding those elements in which Cora taps into them to get to the spirit, the history, the ancientness, the to feel the history, if you will, of the planet and of the world. And I think that is crucial. And that's kind of like what the spirit waters she's currently in are doing is tapping her into those historical waters. Absolutely. Ah, um, so guys, as we are rounding out here uh, at uh, the end of our first hour, we're actually going to uh, wrap up this episode for right now. Again, I knew that we were going to go a while with these because my goodness, it's just, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to dive in. There's so much to just break down with all of this. These are so chock full of all kinds of good tasty bits to be able to talk about. Um, so we're, we're going to kind of wrap things up. But before we do, I uh, wanted to do the uh, quick shout out again to the folks in our Discord uh, for uh, the wonderful points. Guys, thank you so much. Um, so first and foremost, uh, we had uh, Fran, of course, big friend of the show, has been a guest host with us as well from A Healthy Dose of Fran. Um she, uh, one of the points that she brings up, she says, honestly, the only thing I've ever uh, really been, because we asked folks, you know, what do you love about it? Anything you're critical of? Uh, let us know here and we'll share your thoughts. So Fran says, honestly, the only thing I've ever really been critical of for the introduction to Juan was the amnesia storyline. Uh, I'd much rather they hadn't have had that and just found a less cliche way to thread in the story. Um, the which- friend gets me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Frank gets yeah, me. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, definitely, definitely a, a very valid point. And I think that it brings up a lot of, uh, interesting perspectives to be able to talk about. Um, uh, next we had, uh, Lacunza Parse, uh, who says the whole Juan story is completely incredible. I think that knowing about that story helps shape the Korra that we will be seeing in the future. So I would love to talk about that. The impact that that story had on Korra as the avatar and with her decision making from that moment on. Ah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Snaps. Snaps all around. <laughs> Did you just I mean, give them snaps? Yes. <laughs> no, Colin. No. You gotta give them like little rounds of applause, like golf claps. Yes. 
there we go <laughs> but i think that very much echoes the point that you uh that you brought up earlier the idea that like it is so much of what we see here that really begins to help with this evolution of Korra as the avatar exactly in such a huge way so that that absolutely couldn't agree more um and then uh finally we have a uh from damn it jim <laughs> uh, best have... handle in the discord Yes. Um, uh, Damage Jim says, uh, have you guys seen Hello Future Me's critique of beginnings? It's an interesting take, one I don't disagree with. I enjoy the story as a standalone mythos, and the visuals and the visuals are absolutely gorgeous, but always felt a little out of place. It's a sudden swerve away from the more complex issues of international politics and the civil war into a more classic fantasy quest. Uh, plus, my personal gripe about it is that it's very clearly another hero's journey, and thus much more similar in structure to Aang's story than Korra's. Add in the fact that it, is be- that it became this beacon of quote-unquote redemption for season two, and I feel like it cheapens what Korra, the show, is attempting to accomplish. Uh, to be fair uh, to the showrunners, there's a lot of symbolism and visual cues in the second half that suggest they're actively creating that compare contrast and allow Korra to upend that legacy by doing something wholly different than either Aang or Wan. Um, yeah. Is it though? Like, is it really mm. too much different? I mean, okay. Mm. Let's let's take it back. There's some political upheaval in mm-hmm. Korra. Mm-hmm. Juan essentially is asking for political upheaval in his little mm. feudalism tri- kind of tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the haves and the have-nots in Korra in the be- in the first season. There are the have and the have-nots in Juan's tale. Mm. There are spirits that are you know generally everywhere that people don't quite understand. There are spirits currently everywhere that people don't understand. I I definitely I definitely see uh, I definitely see their point though because I think a lot of it does come from uh, that. But sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue. Sorry about that. I mean, like it's it's all about it boils down to the the continual stand, stand, standalone storyline, which is you know absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like the idea is mm. that essentially these people have power and there are other people in the world, but they don't take them into consideration. It's always about me, 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 me. And we see this is that the brother wants to be the, 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 the chieftain of the North and the brother then gets the other brother cast away, but then he doesn't just want that. He wants the South too, but then he doesn't even want that. He wants way more than what he wants. And Varric doesn't just want his company. He wants Asami's company. Like it's, it's sort of, just boils down to that whole point of just people who have power and those that don't and exactly what wants. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't disagree with the idea that I do. I do feel like in some respect, it's a little hard. It does. Um, it's a little hard to compare and contrast given the time periods and what's, you know, the complexity and nature of such things. And, you know, I don't think, in Juan's time, they wouldn't sit around a table delegating, but mm. there are some nuances that occur and just simple human nature that I think are vital to understand if we're going to go down this road of diplomacy and what's about to happen later in the series. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And uh, I mean, I'm glad uh, to uh, Damage Jim brought this up about. Um, so Hello Future Me's uh, video on beginnings, I think, was um, it is such an interesting perspective. And what we're going to be doing, honestly, after we finish our initial discussion of beginnings one and two, is that I want to do a uh, complete discussion that is actually going to be a uh, an examination of that critique from them because i think it is it is beautifully laid out as an argument i think that uh again we have seen time and time again that tim from uh hello future me is a, a huge avatar fan and is not just uh kind of jumping on the Korra hate train uh as a lot of other youtubers have frankly um and it's just it's more of uh a a, a, a well-rounded critique of everything, but I think that it because he dives into it in such a complex way and really dives in, I, I really want to be able to get a a lot of different perspectives from us to be able to examine that as well. So we are going to be doing a a full response to that. We might actually even do that as a uh, one of our episodes where we uh, stream it. Um, and then we can have a little bit of back and Ooh, forth um, and from the, from yeah, our listeners, yeah. Because I think that that would actually add a lot to the conversation and being able to get that. Because I think again, when that video came out, it was it was huge because no one had really critiqued beginnings. Everyone had critiqued book two of Korra, and the, again, uh, Damage Imp brought this up, is that the two episodes of uh, of uh, Beginnings are kind of this quote-unquote beacon of redemption for season two. But I think, again, it doesn't mean that we can't also critique it as well. Um, yeah. Recognize its values, but also recognize potential flaws. Um, so I think that that's going to be really interesting for us to be able to dive into as well. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, uh, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. This, yes, oh my goodness, you. this is already just so exciting. This is so good. <laughs> We're so excited. Yes. Uh, all right. So, uh, first and foremost, again, big shout out to the folks in our Discord, uh, Fran, Lacunza Pars, and Damn It Jim. Appreciate your guys' feedback. Really wonderful to hear your opinions. And if you want to join in on the discussion, uh, find it in our show notes. Uh, you can join us on our discord uh be a part of the conversation we're going to be doing more of this type of stuff where we are going to kind of pose questions uh to folks in the discord to be able to kind of have as a prompt to be able to uh kind of have some of this conversation because i mean if you still feel you want to email us at legendofportalcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you there but to be honest i think that this is going to be uh, a much more uh, productive and uh, push-pull uh, in terms of that discussion uh, on the Discord. And we have been loving all of the wonderful art, uh, memes, videos, discussion that you guys have brought so far. Uh, so for all the people who have joined our Discord so far, who have joined our Discord so far, thank you all so much for joining in and for all the support. Um, it's been really fun being on the Discord with all of the people and just being able to see like what people are talking about, what they find interesting, um, what they dislike, what they like. So yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Please consider joining. Yes. Um, so uh, you can find us on social media, of course. Uh, on Twitter, we are at PortalCastPod. Facebook and Instagram at Legend of PortalCast. And our website, legendofportalcast.com. Uh, so remember, guys, if you are listening on iTunes, 
uh, be sure to leave us a rating and review if you like the show. Love to hear some feedback. We'd love to be able to uh, get some of those ratings because honestly, it's how more folks find us. Um, and we appreciate the support as always to all the folks who are sharing this, whether by word of mouth or telling their friends, that is the biggest way for our podcast to grow. We don't really invest in any type of, uh, like kind of marketing or anything because honestly, the organic growth that we have seen so far of the podcast has been wonderful. So the best way that we can help, uh, kind of spread the word of the podcast is in fact by word of mouth. And we appreciate, uh, the way that you guys have done that so far. Um, big shout outs too to, uh, I want to do a quick shout out as well to uh, uh, my friends out in Chicago, uh, Rich and Erica, introducing uh, to some of their friends. I know uh, I got to have some great conversations with them uh, over playing some uh, Among Us and Super Smash as they were, we were geeking out about uh, Avatar a few weeks back. Um, so uh, to all of those folks, thank you so much for tuning in as well. And you guys will see us next time. Uh, part two of part one of beginnings. <laughs> I know this part is going to be confusing. Part one, <laughs> beginnings, part one, part two of beginnings. Part one, the first. Part one, the second. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much uh, again for the support as always. We'll see you next week for our follow up on this discussion. But until then, and until next time. Eh. Let us leave.